You're listening to Policy Matters, a podcast from the Peninsula Foundation. Based in Chennai, India, we are a think tank bringing different perspectives to national and international affairs. On today's episode, Subi, Lisa and Mr. Mohan Gurusamy discuss the RCEP and its impact for India. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so, for the benefit of every, all of our listeners and everybody here, um, what we're going to really discuss today is India's decision to walk out of the RCEP agreement. Uh, and we're going to try to uh, look at it from multiple viewpoints and see why India chose to make that decision. Um, so, just before we get into it, like a small brief on um, the RCEP. So the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or the RCEP is essentially a free trade agreement and it was signed last November. Um, So there are currently 15 uh, member countries who are part of this trade agreement. We have the uh, 10 ASEAN members as well as Australia, China, Korea, Japan and New Zealand who've um, signed this agreement, right? So currently, given the size of the countries that have signed this agreement, um, it is said to be the largest um, regional trade agreement that is in existence. So it's fair to question um, and to raise this question as to why India chose to opt out of this, despite the fact that you know from 2013 when we when negotiations started, India was a key partner. Uh, but in 2019, um, what the government decided was that a lot of the concerns that India found very pertinent to itself. Um, were not being comprehensively addressed, you know, within the negoti- negotiations, and hence India chose to um, discontinue, um, you know, being a part of um, the uh, uh, the agreement. Right. So, what we're going to essentially look at is why India chose to make this decision, and you know, what are the implications of this for us as a country, but also just in the global uh, scenario of how we uh, deal with this. So, to um, share his views and to give us. Um, you know, a deep insight into how we really look at this decision. We have uh, our esteemed guest on the podcast uh, with us uh, today. Um, so uh, I hand over to Subi uh, to introduce uh, Mr. Mohan Guruswami. Thank you, Lisa. Um, it gives me immense pleasure to welcome Mr. Mohan Gurusamy, Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Peninsula Foundation, to speak on this very interesting but also pertinent topic today. Mr. Gurusamy is the chairman and founder of the Center for Policy Alternatives and has also formally served as the advisor to the finance minister. He is widely acclaimed in academic and policy circles and has authored several books on policy and governance. Throughout his career, Mr. Gurusamy has held several roles, including teaching, senior management, journalism, and in the government. We are absolutely delighted to have you with us today, sir. Given your experience and expertise in policy matters, we are sure it is going to be an enriching experience to hear your views on India and the RCP. Thank you. With that, let me just start off with a very generic question to the topic at hand today. So India's decision to opt out of the RCEP was largely based on wanting to protect uh, domestic uh, industries from cheap Chinese imports, as well as the fears that our industries would be unable to compete um, with international standards, right? So in this slide, do you think our government has sort of tossed in um, the cushion of protectionism over the creative forces of, um, over the forces of creative destruction that trade would bring in? And in opting out of such agreements, are we making a trade-off between providing Indian customers, cu- consumers with um, high-quality products versus allowing our industries to flourish? India opted out of RCEP in 2019, I think after the 18th round or whatever. It had no objections placed till that 18th round. Suddenly, we had a, a whole lot of objections and we wanted them to be addressed. Now that coincided with a major economic slowdown in India. And our trade balances were getting out of control. And But that had nothing to do with RCP or imports or coming in via RCEP or, you know, through preferential trade or whatever. It just happened that, you know, we were just not making enough investments in our economy. If you look at capital investment, by that time had come down to about 7% of GDP. If you have 7% of GDP as capital investment, your savings rate are coming down, 
the savings rate had come down to about 24-25%. Then you can't blame external forces for it. The blame lies internally, that you're not able to get your economy into, into order, into control, and make the necessary pushes to get it going again. Now, capital expenditure, savings rate, which is actually taxation plus domestic savings and what have you, household, household savings, are internal matters. You can't address them with through external forces. Now, if you look at it, have any imports for decrease from China? China still has a trade balance of about $55 billion with us. Every country in the world has a trade balance, except the United States. But the United States has trade deficits with every country in the world. That's why world GDP growth depends on U.S. trade deficits. Imagine a world without U.S. trade deficits. Will anybody have surpluses? Now, so I think the objective issue, conditions, didn't change. Uh, whether this would have conferred any benefits to us is a matter we can discuss. But did we reduce imports from China? Did we reduce imports from the other countries? From, from Korea, from uh, Thailand, from Malaysia. The record doesn't speak so. We, can, we continue to be a huge import guzzler economy. Our trade imbalance is over $120 billion a year. We have been doing that for the last 25 years. It's not something we started new. So every time a trade balance widens, the rupee devalues. 30 years ago, the rupee was 20 rupees to a dollar. Look at where we are now. And that's simple economics. You can't look for externalities to, to blame for that. If you keep on importing oil and not export, you have to pay. For, oil is your single biggest import. You've got to pay for it by exporting. You can't pay for it by devaluing your, your rupee and paying with money you don't have. So I don't think RCEP made any difference to us, membership or no membership. The, the trick for India is to get competitive, to get its act together, to get onto a growth mode, a domestic growth mode. When you start growing domestically and your production exceeds your domestic market demand, then it'll go out. Right now, whatever you produce is sold in India because the growth is not much. All right, sir. Thank you very much for your um, response on that. Um, along those lines, um, do you also think India's, um, how does India's walkout of the RCP, uh, RCEP play on, play on the um, Look East and the Act East policy who, where the primary objective was, you know, greater integration with the Asian neighbors, right? So um, logically on those lines, the RCEP would have been a very natural extension of the Act East policy. But um, you think it's contradictory, contradictory in nature that the government has to do You see, if your economy was growing at 7-8%, you could have moved, made the external move. You could have gone to RCEP, you could have gone to various trade blocks because you are in a growth mode and you were attracted investment. Now, what has happened now is that we were, we stopped growing. We started declining. 2014, we were, you know, uh, 2010, we were growing at about real rate at about 12 to 13%. That started declining. And it came down to about 3% in 2019. So before the COVID also hit us, we were in the, in the trough when COVID came. But nothing had changed except that we were stopped growing. And when we stopped growing, we started blaming imports for it. Now, what are Chinese imports which come in? You know, this whole theory that, you know, uh, that they're selling us rubbish and things we don't need, it's un unfounded. The amount of kites and the amount of tops and toys which come is small and negligible. What we import is laptops, which we don't make in India, computers, which we don't make in India, mobile phones, which we don't produce in India. We only have begun to assemble now. 
So this accounts for about 40 billion dollars of our exports from China. And then we used to have a giant pharmaceutical industry here. We used to make the basic chemicals, the APIs as they're called. And they are now not being made in India. And they're made in China. But they can always be made in India because the technology to make APIs went from India to China. And we only do the aggregation of the formulations of the pharma industry. That could have been a big export driver. But we didn't, we didn't use our advantages. And we just let it slip. Economies are dropping. And now we're looking for excuses. All right, so that's, that's absolutely true. I think that um, is something that uh, we, the government also must have uh, kept in mind um, through the negotiations, right? So, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> that requires a mind to, uh, but let's hope, let's assume they have a mind. But I think governments don't re respond to minds. Government res governments respond to external political stimuluses. And they respond to public chatter. The chatter was Chinese imports are flooding us. And therefore, we are in this shape. If Chinese imports were not coming, we would have made them ourselves. Now, at one time, we used to be the world's biggest manufacturer of clocks. You know, the TikTok clocks, everybody's home had one. We used to make it in, in Rajkot. Ajanta Clocks was the world's biggest clock maker. Even today, it's an international brand name. They couldn't make, couldn't get good productivity out of labor in Rajkot. And they couldn't get good prices for inputs. So they started shifting to China. So now Ajanta Clocks get made in China. They come to us. Take fans. Every Indian home has a ceiling fan, not one, at least two, three. At one time, we had the world's biggest ceiling fan industry. We didn't innovate. We started, just kept selling the same thing. Usha fans was Usha fans for the last 30 years. There were no innovations, no new designs, no new colors. You could have any color as long as it was white. And so we were stuck. Then we started finding that if you grew bigger than a certain size, you know, basic economics says if the production increases, labor input costs all come down. And so, you know, your profitability increases. The profitability increases, you make new investments. What we did was we had small scale sector that if you produced 100 fans, you would not pay duty or something like that. And if you made more than that, you'd pay exorbitant duties. So it became profitable to contract your, your production out. So if Usha fans or Orient fans or whatever were there, they were giving it to small manufacturers to make them and put their labels on it to save that extra duty. As a result, now the small manufacturers are not able to compete against giant Chinese manufacturers. So now we get Usha fans from China, Orient fans from China, Havel fans from China. So this is the way we shoot ourselves in the feet. To address that, RCEP membership doesn't make any difference. For any FTA membership makes no difference. It is how we organize our domestic industry, how we restructure our domestic industry, which will make the difference. Okay, sir. Um, yeah, so what do you? Yeah, on that, thank, thank you, Suti. Uh, so on that point, sir, that you mentioned where, um, in a way, our the domestic industries at home are on some grounds, they are obviously unable to compete you know, with the levels uh, that um, the international standards require them to be at. And that's also one of the fundamental reasons why the Indian government cited where they wanted to protect you know, domestic industries. And hence they said uh, entering into such kind of an agreement uh, would be problematic. At the same time, currently we do have a, 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 a large trade deficit with China. But the, and as you mentioned, sir, we we have the kind of goods that we import in from China are also quite fundamental to, uh, you know, like the in, the industries that we need in terms of we can't we as of now aren't in a position to produce them at home. So, sir, if the government is really um, you know trying to uh, 
if we want to make our industries at home competitive while at the same time ensure that what comes in from china can't essentially be cut off how do we kind of balance that and go forward in terms of making our industries competitive while at the same time not completely cutting off you know the the kind of products that we really need from china um so one simple fact of life that you don't become competitive till you compete and you compete not with your own we compete with foreign markets so if chinese cars are coming then you make your own cars better to compete with them now look at the chinese car models and the indian car models now look at the international models in india look at our models and that gives you an answer what you're looking for you need innovation you need design you need creativity and you may need to make investments for that the scale of economy is have to be big but today we only have one big manufacturer completely indian manufacturer in the top 4 or 5 mahindras or tatas to some extent but they're not big the big fellow is suzuki the next biggest is hyundai and third hyundai has now got two brands kia and hyundai and then the chinese fellows of car coming in with innovation you know they will talk to you and say what would you want to do start the engine put on the ac you know you can give it instructions verbally he's got a kind of an alexa sitting inside so they do these little innovations you know when when honda was started selling in america everybody thought people were buying hondas because the engines were good and they were very silent in the beginning they were all clatter clattering and noisy as others but honda had small things like cup holders places to put your bottle water bottle and things like that and you know armrests at the back american cars didn't offer that but so people are buying cars people assume that all cars are about the same so i buy a car for a, a certain small advantage like today now everybody is giving air condition vents in the seats in indian summer cool breeze blowing from under the seats is quite a comfort if i didn't realize it till i sat in my daughter's car but that becomes a reason to buy a car so engines all are the same the panel plates are all made in the same machines they're not very different you innovate in small designs somewhere along that along that road we have lost that little creativity that will come only through competition look at mahindra cars how are they getting better they're getting better each year each model gets better look at the new jeep which has just come out it i drove it the other day it's a world class car it has come because jeep itself came so mahindra had to make the thar to compete with jeep and made it better so you know therefore foreign com- competition makes you better as a rule we must not forget So to say that they will come and eat up our markets. Now, look at how we can get markets. Today we are a big producer of coffee. Is there a pound of coffee with Indian brand names being sold abroad? If you look at coffee price structure, only four percent of the price of a pound of coffee goes to the producer. Thirty-four percent goes to the trade. Forty percent goes to the manufacturer. So the person who owns the brand name, he makes the money. So unless we have our own brands, unless we have our own exports with our brands, with Indian companies doing it, we would, so all the exporters of coffee and tea are foreign companies. They have different sources of merit of, of sourcing, and they will source what is cheaper. If you have coffee from Kenya, tea from Kenya to England is closer. Unless you have a brand like Darjeeling, you build a brand. You invest in building a brand. We're only learning this game now because we want to go out. Tata bought Tetley Tea Company and wants to go abroad. Realize that Darjeeling is a big brand name. Start building on it. So you have to build all these things. It can't be done overnight. Or you can only be an exporter of primary commodities. We export iron ore. Because iron ore is the easiest thing to export. You dig the ground, put it on a Let's move on and take it to a conveyor belt and then send it out to China to make steel. We got to learn to make steel here. Make steel steeper, cheaper. 
if Chinese imports come, we can compete with it. At one time, steel used to come from England. Then we started making steel. Now steel has begun to come from China. We've got to deal with it. Competitively, not through hiding behind tariffs. A tariff makes you inefficient. A tariff can be short-term, one or two years. You can hide behind it. But sooner or later, you'll have to make it yourself. Get out of the tariff because you want to export also. And if you can export it, if you can sell it at a higher price in India, why would you want to export it at a lower price abroad? Think of that also. So as you mentioned, when we're talking about you know increasing competitiveness and you know scaling up industries and incentivizing them to you know have a, this healthy relationship with you know foreign competition, do you think that on some that in some area like our policymakers and the way we formulate policies doesn't seem to really focus on this area? Like, is there a sort of you know lacune where we are consistently missing this? Um, focus on how do we, you know, where we where we invite in foreign competition and we try to scale it up and work uh, towards like increasing our own uh, domestic industries to be as competitive as them. Like on a uh, from the perspective of our policymakers and our policies today, do you think there is some sort of uh, uh, you know um, area where they are not being able to really address this and they are failing how at, at some point? Structure of government. We have a phrase in India called to enjoy power. You know, power is not meant to be enjoyed. Power is meant, meant to be used to serve objectives. Now, in India, our bureaucrats and politicians take that phrase literally. So we employ regulation. You see, you must come to me for permission. Okay? Now, so regulation inhibits. So we have to get rid of regulation. Large bits of regulation can be scrapped. You can have regulation on pollution and environment discharge. But you can't have regulation what you make. We have regulation what you make. Then uh, you have to be able to target. Now, Japan used to have a, has a ministry called MITI, Ministry for International Trade and Industries. MITI would decide that we want to be the world's biggest camera manufacturer. So what do we need for that? We need special steels. We need companies. We need precision machine tools, optics. So they go around building an ecosystem for cameras. That's how you get Olympus, Sony, Canon, all these guys, Nikon, all making cameras because the ecosystem is created. And Viti says, this is our target. We want to go and export. So. We don't have meetings in India. We have regulators. Say, oh, you want, to, you want to make cameras? Come to me for permission. That doesn't work. You've got to get a complete push from behind. That is what China is doing, adopting the Japanese model. They decide that, you know, uh, the security cameras in airports, when you go and you put your suitcase in, the Chinese decided they want to dominate them. And so the government started giving them pushes. And so that, to some extent, entails a subsidy. The subsidy you can give directly, or you can give through tax concessions. There's nothing wrong in that. And you can do it with opacity. Anything the Chinese can do, you can also do. But you don't want to do. So, you know, because another problem in India is that our bureaucrats have short tenures. Joint Secretary Textiles will come for two years. He take the fellow six months to learn something. Then he's ready to go. And he wants to enjoy power a little while. So you know he's killed the textile industry and he goes away somewhere else to kill something else now. So problem with our bureaucracy, there's no continuity, there's no objectives. And that you, if you set a goal that I want to export, say, a uh, billion dollars worth of cars, which we can, Who's responsible for it? Who's going to own that policy? Because the guy who starts supposed to carry out that policy, he's gone in a year. Another guy will come. So you've got to get people to own policies. If you stay there. And Miti should, we should have our Ministry of International Trade and Industries. If you combine together, our Commerce Ministry is different, our Industries Ministry is different. 
industries ministry is basically now controlling public sector. He doesn't want to let go of public sector because that is some way of collecting capital, rents for himself, and enjoy power. So you have to restructure government to do all this and set out a government by objectives and allocating responsibilities. You want to make vision. This is what I want to do. And this is what my economy is going to be like. An economy of where we dominate specialist markets. And there's a certain spirit which goes with it of nationalism. So we mistake nationalism for protectionism. Now, after the war, there was a man called Konosuke Matsushita. He started this company which makes national Panasonic, all these products. So Matsushita, in the debris of the war, decided that he wants to make something. So he spotted television sets and radio sets to make. And then he said that Japan will never again lose a war. That's his determination, that he wants to dominate the world. So I started making this television sets, national television sets, black and white sets. He went to America and saw found the biggest manufacturer, there was a company called Zenith. He promptly went and bought it over. And then shut down Zenith and started flooding the American market with Japanese TVs. So you do it with singular determination. You go to dominate a market. It's, it's war by other means. So we don't want to wage war by other means. And the, and the way in the modern age you, you win, by dominating foreign markets. In the old days, you colonized countries and dominated their markets. Or you had competitive advantage in dominated markets now. So you have to get a competitive advantage to dominate markets. So I think this is a spirit which is needed, which needs to be built into our system, which built into our people, that we must win. Thank you, sir. That, that's a very interesting take on how, you know, we fundamentally even approach the entire issue from the very, you know, roots of it, from the heart of um, just how we look at, you know, our, our structures and how they approach these kind of issues. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, so, we would you like to uh, take over? Yes. Um, so, continuing along the lines of uh, the policy and governance aspect, right? So, um, in terms of FTAs, India already has several uh, pre-existing bilateral trade agreements with uh, especially comprehensive ones, especially with Japan, South Korea. And there's also a lot of enthusiasm about uh, new ones being made with uh, countries like Australia, right? But um, historically, India seems to have underutilized these FTAs. And like you said, we just keep importing and we have, uh, as a result, incurred a lot of, um, you know, deficits. So India's past performance, given that India's past performance in this, in, in terms of FTAs and bilateral trade has been dismal, do you think there's a need for like a structural revamp of our um, foreign policy in terms of trade? Not really. You know, foreign policy has very little impact on trade. I mean, we don't like China, but we keep importing from China. Chinese don't like Japanese, but they keep getting Japanese investments. So foreign policy has nothing to do with trading relationship and investment relationship. But, you, can, you know, if you had, we had joined RC, one of the arguments was that forget about Chinese exports, imports to India, but Australia and New Zealand will flood us with dairy products. Now we have the world's biggest milk production. But our milk production is inefficient. Collection is inefficient. So we have to, because by the time the milk leaves the cow and comes to the plant, sometimes 12 hours, 24 hours take place, the milk forms bacteria. So you have to bring the milk in, make it powder, and then reconstitute it again. It's one extra process to clean it up. So we need to get our collection chains in order and disperse our collection chains, improve rural transportation, roads, you know, and also realize that big dairy farms are more efficient. You know, one guy producing with milk with two cows in his backyard. We don't know what the quality is going to be like. 
What is the fat content going to be like? How much of water is we adding? Now, all this has to be controlled properly and regulated properly. Now, if Australian milk came, it would have forced us, our manufacturers, to improve. Amul would have improved. Everybody would have improved. But that has not happened. And if you think Australian and New Zealand milk products are going to swamp us, there are ways of dealing with it. So when I was in, in government, there was a problem with milk. They were selling, uh, Europe had a mountain of but um, milk fat, which is really mounds of milk which has been powdered. And that is brought into India to add into our milk during lean season. And they wanted to be able to sell, give it, they said, we'll give it away free. Because Indian children don't get enough milk, we'll give all this free to you. But the, what would have, it, it would have happened was domestic prices would have been pushed down and it would have disincentivized our producers. So policy came to government and came and you know, government had to frame. So I framed the policy saying that, yeah, yeah, we should take anything which comes, it's very good, but all milk products should come to Tuticorin port. And in Tuticorin, we should examine them batch by batch for mad calf disease. Because meantime, there was mad cow disease in Europe and nobody was buying their beef. And the milk was also being denied market. Russia stopped buying. So I said, we should also check it for batch milk. Now imagine if all the milk powder which you want to import comes in Tuticorin with old decrepit port. We designate that as a port. And then, you know, we can slow imports down. Now, France dealt with, you know, for in, winter sports is big in Europe. So Japan started exporting skis, uh, no, uh, um, VCRs to France. And when France wanted to export skis to Japan, the Japanese put controls on it saying that our snow is different. The crystalline structure of our snow is different. So we will have to test your skis. So what France did said, that's very nice. You must be tested, but we will now test all your VCRs in one port in Toulouse. So let all your VCRs come to Toulouse, let them pile up in the warehouse. Then we will check them batch by batch. So this is how you play the game intelligently. Now, when you don't have continuity and you don't have people with knowledge of how business runs, then you will end up making stupid policies. So we end up making policies which will benefit the foreign manufacturer more than our domestic industry. So this is again something we have to be careful because India being an open country has lots of lobbies. We have lobbies representing foreign companies, Indian companies. We have, I, I remember once the, uh, I was in a, in a foreign policy seminar in Delhi. They were, our strategic experts were very concerned that the Americans hadn't sent an ambassador to India as yet. This was about three, four years ago. I said, they don't have to worry. They have all you ambassadors for America here. Yeah. We have a huge lobby of people wanting to push American interests. So India is like that. We're going to have people batting for India, but intelligently. Putting blocks and imports not, does not help you. It harms you. But you can regulate imports intelligently, you know, and that is to be done. That for that we need long-term players, long-term vision, and more decentralized government. A government which functions by objectives. If the Prime Minister of India is going to sign off on seven hundred files a day, he has no time for attention. All power is centralized. So there are a lot of structural problems we need to address. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Especially the uh, example that you gave on VCRs and uh, this case, I have never heard of that before. That was very, you know, interesting to uh, learn about. Um, since you also spoke about dairy, and uh, given that currently the Indian government seems to also have raised the question of um, some of it in industries like agriculture, for instance. 
do you think india could have for the rcp in particular um approached a, a stance wherein they protect some industries like agriculture for example uh, by protect i mean maybe use any of these um innovative methods that you suggested while on the other hand going ahead with the overall rcp and not protecting some of the other industries that they want to make more competitive i tell you one thing our agricultural products cost the least in the world cost the least in the world nobody can nobody sells wheat at 20 rupees a kilo anywhere in the world nobody produces wheat at 1300 rupees a quintal anywhere in the world but finishing the wheat making it into flour packaging it properly putting additives this is it and you see increasing can you buy loose wheat anymore in the market can you buy loose rice do you buy loose sugar anywhere we are forced to get more packaging more value addition so that was bound to have happened if australian wheat came you wouldn't have bought australian wheat saying that it comes from australia because its wheat is wheat but if the if you have their wheats have less pesticides it's a different matter so and who are the people selling wheat products in india kellogs sells flakes to the whole country now so foreign company mill doesn't matter but is buying your wheat is processing your wheat and selling it so we should get that kind of investment in india which we don't when i remember when uh, when um, i was in a debate with uh, a gentleman called murli manohar joshi he was um, a big minister in the government and we were debate organized on potato chips yes computer no put, potato chips no computer chips yes okay this was the topic so he spoke first and then uh, and he said that you know computer chips is what we need to make we don't need potato chips foreign companies should make potato chips we will do that ourselves but they should come to put make computer chips so when i had to answer i said look a, 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 a computer chip company making integrated circuits or whatever the plant costs about a billion dollars the machinery is all important the etching inks to etch the circuits is important only the silicon wafer which costs about not even 0.1% of the chip can be procured locally because we have plenty silicon is only mud so you process it from good mud marina beach sands are good so you process into silicon so only the wafers come from india everything else comes from abroad and then you know we will only have to sell it to our own manufacturers of transistors and all and that may not be your cost may become too high as a what's wrong with potato chips the potatoes grown here the oil to fry the potatoes is grown here the guy who does the frying is an indian the guy who does the value addition the packaging is indian is put into boxes and sent to the distributor is an indian so the value addition chain is all indian now in a packet of potato chips which you buy for 20 rupees the actual potato will cost 1 rupee the rest is value addition that value addition takes place here and that is the important thing that you get your value addition here not abroad so every time you look at something which say what is the value addition here so he of course he no cars come you know a car is a block of iron if you know a standard car was based upon a ton it is made into an engine made into a body into a chassis all the formation is value addition it doesn't matter who makes the car whether it's ford or or chrysler or rolls royce doesn't matter as long as he buys the steel here and presses the panels here assembles it here now now we're getting cbu units completely built up kits all this everything is brought from abroad and screwdriver here now that's the kind of thing we need to avoid if you mercedes benz you want to make cars here make it by all means but make it like ford does in chennai 
or Hyundai does in Chennai. Produce everything here and make it here. Otherwise, don't come. So they all come saying that, you know, E-class model, Z200, I'll make it for three years. Then they say, you know, we phased out that model. We want to CPU the new model. Never make anything. And you make here, export. I would like to see a time if you want to, when all our companies have an import-export balance sheet. What did you import? What did you export? Don't penalize them for it, but keep a watch so that they also know that you're watching. At some stage, you can add a little, tweak a little tax to it to disincentivize, disincentivize imports. But it has to be done very cleverly and targeted way. You can't blanket you increase tariffs. You selectively say that you're consuming too much of foreign, foreign exchange and therefore we're taxing you for it. That's the price you make. Companies pay and people pay and governments also pay. Yes, I think that is a very nuanced and innovative approach that you have suggested. And uh, I think uh, as future policymakers, uh, people who are listening to this, um, we will all, we should all take note. Um, on that note, I'm handing over again to Lisa. Um, yes, sir. So a little bit on a slightly different tangent, um, I wanted to also, and this is something both Sudhi and I were wondering about. Um, so one of the takeaways from the RCEP was also the fact that um, though India walked out of it, um, India's quad partners, that is, you know, Japan and Australia, they did continue, uh, they did reinforce the uh, their commitment to being part of the RCEP. And the reason why this becomes important is because, uh, you know, as quad partners, there's largely this narrative that um, they are kind of countering, uh, you know, the Chinese influence through stronger Indo-Pacific ties. So, like, what do you believe um, you know, does this kind of imply the fact that, you know, both Japan and Australia have gone ahead and decided to be part of the RCEP? Um, do they, have they prioritized larger uh, the fact that, you know, even though they have some stats with China, they still want to, you know, scale up and uh, be part of a free trade agreement, something that India hasn't done? Uh, or how do we really interpret this? Matter zilch to India. U.S. presence in Indian Ocean matters to India if they give us the kind of information and assistance we want. But tomorrow, we have a conflict. We are in a conflict situation with China. Which has Japan made any noise? Has Australia made any noise? Has Japan said, we will give you something at a concessional rate? Has Australia said anything? Has America said anything? They all want to sell you at market prices. And we are the guys with the border with China. When the time for heavy lifting comes, there'll be nobody there. There is nobody there. Now, look at the other converse of the thing. Who is the biggest foreign investor in, in China? Japan. Who's China's biggest trade partner, international bilateral trade partner? Japan. Who, which country is that China hit the most in the world? Japan. Who's the second biggest trade partner? USA. Who's the second biggest investor? USA. Who does China hit second most? USA. Who do the Chinese completely dis despise and dislike? Taiwan. So, you know, you got to have some kind of understanding of what is happening here. People will continue doing business. Don't fall into traps of, of soaring rhetoric. You know, um, but the quad will come to us. Quad will not come to us. The MRC will take you. When push comes to shove, we are on our own. And we've got to be on our own. So therefore, look at Japan. At the time when they, they were fighting with China on, on the, those islands yeah. in, 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 of uh, Japan, uh, Japanese foreign investment in China actually went up. At the time when Modi and Abe were doing puja in Banaras, Japanese investments in India came down. So, you know, the world of business is totally different. The world of trade, the world of economics is totally driven by different sets of forces. 
not by throwing rhetorics, you know, that I will do this and I will do that. Nothing will, will happen in the end of the day. It's how much of money you have in your pocket, which confers power to you. So we have to keep looking for advantages. We will not get in. What is Australia? The 23 or 30 million people in Australia. We have more people on trains every day than in Australia. What can Australia do for you? Yeah, so that, that's quite, um, you know, it just reminded me of, the, of that saying that goes, um, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies close. And I think that's at, at some point, the way China um, behaves is somewhat um, somewhere I can, I can, you know, relate um, their behavior to that phrase. And so I think you've already hinted at this, uh, but just one last question. Um, this is something that a lot of experts and a lot of uh, people who put it out in the public domain, they believe that, um, India at this point of time, given that they walked out the RCEP, should look at making the Quad a more formalized economic dialogue. I believe you already addressed this to a little uh, uh, in, in in your previous in the previous question. But sir, do you think there is much merit to this argument, like uh, in terms of actually formalizing the Quad into an economic structure? Do we really think that that's a way that India needs to go forward um, in looking at the? Quad? No, I don't think that will ever become a viable e economic unit. Viable. Players in the world are China, America, yes. and Europe. Yes. Japan is not going to expand economically for the next hundred years because its population is declining and becoming old. China, what does India need now? India needs what we call sovereign funds. So a sovereign fund is money owned by the government, which is given, invested as bonds. The sovereign fund has a long, long-term aspect to it. If you build a train system, railway line, you look for a rate of return, say about 40 years or 30 years. If you're putting a, it into a television making unit, you look for a rate of return. In three, four years, you want to collect your money back. The models change. So you, what does India need? India needs infrastructure. Infrastructure are all long gestation, long-term projects. You want to put a new electrical grid, it'll cost you lots of money and it'll cost. And all private money is short-term money. All the money in American banks are short-term money. They want returns in two, three years. Who, have, who has sovereign funds? Sovereign funds are with, US has no foreign exchange reserves. Incidentally, their foreign exchange reserves only $68 billion, opposed to India's $558 billion. Countries which have sovereign funds are China, Kuwait, Norway, Saudi Arabia. And these are the countries which have Japan. So you get them to invest in your infrastructure. You get them to invest in infrastructure means you have to give them some benefits out of it. Investment doesn't come free of cost. There are some costs entailed. You want to factor that. Otherwise, where will we get this money from? Who's going to build a high-speed railway network in India? From India. I think we should do this very intelligently. And the minute you get somebody's sovereign funds locked in to your system, then you've got him in the right place. You can't afford to jeopardize this funds. If China had invested in some of our railway lines and some of our ports, Chinese behavior would have improved. One of the reasons for China's malevolence right now is that we walked out of RCP because we said Chinese imports would come. So China said that is enemy action. You're already treating me as an enemy. So what happened in December, in October we got out, in January they came into Ladakh or February. Now, you build friendships, you build stable relations by having trade, business, exchange of technology, exchange of investments. Now, we should tell China that this trade balance is there, but you have to match it with investments. You just can't have a, have a trade balance with us again and again. We are, we are 
have we have a policy geared at reducing your trade balance and you can reduce your trade balance by investing in india and what did we do we shut down foreign investment from china does it make any difference to china it makes difference to us and all our startup high tech startup chinese are big players in startup funds they all start for venture capital funds we shut down alibaba this fellow that fellow so in a way we to address sentiments sentiment public sentiment sentiments are mostly based on ignorance you too much of patang and manja coming from china how much has come and why did you allow it how many crackers fire crackers came from china why didn't you stop it they banned for imports in india but yet today i saw in the market chinese manja you know what manja is yeah yeah thread with glass yeah, yeah. you use for kite like chinese manja chinese kites who allowed it in if modi should answer that his ministers should answer that don't keep howling china china you have a policy implemented I think that's um, you know I think that that's a very um, you know uh, very interesting way of really looking at. I think it's been a very interesting session for me personally, and I think Subhi will also agree about how we really fundamentally look at the issue in itself. Um, you know, not just through like large uh, narratives that seem to be floating around, but you know, we really tackle the issue and you know really look at it from the roots. Um, so I would like to, on behalf of um, both me and Subhi, and I really like to thank you, sir, for taking your time out. um and really engaging you know uh, in this session with us it's been something that we really have a lot to take away from and i think it's going to provide us a lot of newer perspectives in looking at things you know um we often tend to really just consume whatever's put out there and it's really hard to find those newer angles to really look at it and then you know explore and question and i think that's something we really got from this session um so thank you so much sir um it's been wonderful thank you thank you That's it on this episode of Policy Matters. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. You can also visit our website www.thepeninsula.org.in to learn more about us and our events. We hope you join us next time for more.